Welcome to Mormon Visual Culture, a podcast presented by the Zion Art Society and hosted by Micah Christensen. I'm Eric Biggert, the producer of the show, and I'm offering a special introduction today to remind you all of our upcoming exhibition celebrating 50 years of LDS art, September 12th through the 30th at Anthony's Fine Art in Salt Lake City. Learn more about the show and the artists participating in it on our website, zionartsociety.org. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Today's episode is a discussion between Micah and the award-winning artist Casey Childs. Casey has won and placed at international art competitions at the Portrait Society of America and the Art Renewal Center, as well as locally at the Springville Museum Spring Salon. Casey's well-known and respected among LDS artists, and having studied with William Whitaker, he continued at BYU, and he works where he afterwards worked professionally as a graphic designer. Uh, Then he committed to being a full-time painter, where he enjoyed success both as an artist and a teacher. In this discussion, Micah and Casey discuss a favorite work of art and the process and path that's taken Casey from the wilds of northern Wyoming to widespread success as a figural painter. Specifically, they discuss the role of light, color, and symbolism in one of the church's most recently renowned paintings, The Agony of Christ by Franz Schwartz, which was featured in the Sacred Gifts exhibition at BYU from 2014 to 2015. They also discuss Casey's process and his work as a draftsman, as well as some of the lessons he has learned from mentors and from a recent trip to France. Uh, We recorded this podcast just before the uh, nationwide solar eclipse was occurring, uh, so we kind of hurried up to get through it so we could all enjoy the eclipse. And here we are, we've made it all through the other side, so all's well. So without further ado... Here is Micah's discussion with Casey Childs. We are going to start out with the piece that you chose to discuss today. Yes. And uh, as usual, we'll then, we'll then talk about your work and maybe a little bit of both in between. Okay. Tell us which piece you chose. Uh, I chose Fran Swartz's Agony in the Garden. So this is a painting that was on display as part of Brigham Young University Museum of Arts Sacred Gifts exhibition. Yes. They had Franz Schwartz, Heinrich Hoffman, and Karl Block all in the same show. And yeah. Franz Schwartz and, he- and, um, and Karl Block are both Danish. Heinrich Hoffman's German. Yes. And I don't know exactly what got the three together in the same room. I don't know. With the genesis of the show is. And that's okay. We don't have to know necessarily. And we can right. have... We can. Uh, we talked a little bit of that with um, Herman Dutoy. And I know we'll have Mark Mackleby on at some point. We can ask him. But this piece is, I think, one that almost everybody, the moment that, that, that from the moment of the show, it yeah. seems to have entered the bloodstream. He's not LDS. He was a painter that lived from 1850 yeah. to 1917 in Denmark. Um, but he's, bec- he's come flawlessly into our bloodstream, it seems like. Why, why choose this? Well, I, there were a lot of LDS works or artists that I could have chose from. Um, I was thinking, well, maybe just LDS known works like Harry Anderson was was some of the works I was thinking of. Uh, even I considered even works from my own mentor William Whitaker. Um, but I chose this one. I remember it. It's such a painful thing to I, have to I, choose one. It's hard to choose <laughs> yeah. one. I mean, there's the Carl Blocks, of course. Um, but I saw this one in person, and I remember this was one of the first pieces in that show, mm. and it was, it was really. I look, I came in and looked at it, and of course studied it, and it was, 
it was it felt very contemporary to me. Let's describe it for people, and then I want to get into that why it felt contemporary. Yeah. But let's yeah. let's describe what is the painting. If you had to just in a in in the most bland formal way, just say this is what's in it, and this is what it looks like. Well, it's a, it's a scene of of Christ in uh, of, in uh, uh, with the atonement in the uh, in the garden. Uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, and he is um, praying and, of course, suffering, and has an angel that's consoling him that's with, uh, is kind of have, the angel has her arms around him and and, uh, and it's got this kind of this uh, consoling him. One of the things that surprises me about the way it's composed, I don't know about the doctrine. This is one of the things that interests me about it. It was done for St. Peter's Church in a town um, outside of Copenhagen, as, as far as I was able to find oh, okay. out. Okay. So we often take these things and show them out of context when our, within our literature, right? Yeah, I don't know And much none about of us it. have, re- not many people I think have ever seen this in its original context. So I don't know exactly where it, where it ha- hung in the church, yeah. but it was commissioned for, for that, for a religious setting. Is it's it's larger, right? I mean, this is a is, is it almost altarpiece yeah, size? If from what I remember, it was it's it's pretty large. I believe it was probably about five feet tall by that's roughly four, like a five by four, I believe. And and it's also interesting that the figures fill what we often call as art historians the uh, baroque proportions, meaning that the figures fill almost to the edges of the canvas. Which I think makes it feel more contemporary. It feels more contemporary to you. That's <laughs> right. part of what makes it feel That's more part contemporary. Of it, yes. What makes it yeah, what makes it feel contemporary to you when you look at it? Well I felt like that, the way it's composed and, and uh, I even felt like the colors. Um, what about the colors? The uh, well there's different varying images online, but I remember in person it was a very vibrant kind of blue and the purples that were in the in the robe of Christ were had a very it felt yeah, it felt very much like a, a non-traditional type of, of coloring. I got to tell you, this is what throws me for a loop in this, is the coloring. Yeah. As, as someone who has looked at... It, the, the agony in the garden is a very traditional subject going back to medieval times. And there's, there are prescribed ways of doing this scene. And one of the prescribed ways is the coloring, which is a yeah. very deliberate choice. You kind of can go two ways. One is... Is is neoplatonic, the idea that you don't actually show blood because blood can be distracting from the larger truth of what you're trying to show. So yeah. symbolically, you show blood, sure. which means that you show Christ wearing red, and that that red is symbolic yeah. of the blood that came out of every pore. And occasionally, mm-hmm. you'll see um, blue with that, symbolic of his celestial origins, power, claim. Okay. And so sometimes you'll have the red combined with blue, but always red, and sometimes white. Okay. And as is a visual culture, Mormons have not adopted a particular standard all the time. We have adopted the robe idea, sure. I mean, we, but we haven't always adopted this idea of symbolically you're looking at blood, and that's why it has to be red. I have no idea. When I look at this... I think of two movements that were going on in okay. in the 19th century. I see number one, this kind of Swedish Danish um, um, deliberate restriction of the palette that's going on. You see it in artists that were doing interiors like Wilhelm Hammerschoy, okay. who was doing these these really 
ephemeral, um, atmospheric things with just colors that were very close to one another, but were gradated carefully. And the choice, it seemed to be that the choice was, wasn't to have technicolor clothing on everybody. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But it was more to have this very subtle transfer between colors going on in the piece. Yeah. It does seem to have kind of this tonal quality to it. Right. I mean, it's kind of this blue cast. I mean, I'm amazed. I know that it can't. I remember seeing it in person, too, and you can't do justice to how rich the colors are and They're the layering rich. and the depth and the way that the layers mix with one another when you're looking at it. Yeah. Technically, how do you feel he is as a painter when it comes to the laying down of the paint? Well, I think he, I think he's very uh, skilled. I, I think, uh, but when you study it closely, it has a looseness to it as well. It's hmm. not, uh, but his draftsmanship is right there, and that's what part of it. What draws me into it is, is that uh, it's it's pretty solid. When you say his draftsmanship, what are you talking about? A drawing, drawing proportions. He's he's capturing everything. I mean that uh, image of Christ's head and the hands, and and uh, it just it just feels really, um, yeah. yeah, solid. It is a one of the. Um, the fascinating things to me about this is there's this rule that was in the academy that he was deliberately breaking, which was that uh, you should have the most important figure in the brightest light and at the center. Oh, really? And <laughs> and and people know when to break rules. Sure. Right? Yeah. It's uh, It's like anything. And when you break them, you're often doing it deliberately to make a statement. So he deliberately had the angel's... Hmm. brightness or halo brighter than Christ's face, which is in darkness, which means that it has this feeling of ominous suffering that's going on for yeah. me. Yeah. It's an interesting choice to have it be darker. And it's like there's there's light all around him, and there's darkness at the edge of the painting, and then the next darkest place is his head. Right. Right? right. So it's, it's yeah. like you've got the center of the painting is the darkest. He's done the complete opposite. <laughs> he has. It's, but I think that adds to the to the narrative quality of it too. Just like what you've said, how the angel is consoling yeah. Christ and and kind of blocking out this darkness that's ar- that's around him. And um, if you see it in person, his eyes are open. It's hard to see in this image, but his eyes are open and and just the emotion that's on his face. And that's that's something that uh, has really um, drawn me into this image is is the the narrative and kind of the poetic quality of of what he's trying mm. to say in this image. What do you think? What, what does it say to you? Well, it just, I mean, just, you can see his own suffering. He, his eyes are open. It's very personal. Open, very personal, yeah. And so it does, it does kind of lead you around in this narrative quality that, uh, that you're seeing, that how the angel is consoling. And it's more than just a well-crafted image. It's, yeah. it's got a story that you, you can see. I kind of wonder if he would have been able to do this as a young man. He was about. He did this in 1898. He was born in 1850, which meant that he was he was 48 years old when he painted it. And there aren't a lot of theatrics in this painting. No, there isn't. There aren't. I mean, he's he's gotten rid of the coloring. It's the blood. He's relying a lot on on. But the purple kind of adds to that idea of the, you know, blood. You know, a little bit. So there's a little bit of that. What do you think about this angel being included? What what does the angel add to it? Well, the angel just it just adds to the the fact that he's not alone, you know. It it adds to that that uh, he's receiving 
you know, even though he has to do this thing alone, the angel is there to, you know, give him support when no one else was at, was there for support. As an artist, when you look at the choice of where he put the angel, how big, how much room the angel takes up versus how yeah. much. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's, it's interesting to me that he uses the angel as the framing device. Yeah. And it's this big circle. He's in, engulfed mm. by the angel and then you know he makes and the angel they both make this triangle and it's just this this nice abstract design that uh again fills with the coloring and the the, uh, the cropping it just feels contemporary yeah and, and that's and it's kind of cool to me because i like these elements of the 19th century and trying yeah. to make things technically and beautiful and and go, going back to that but then also making it feel like it's it's got its place today how do you strike the balance between those? We have we we have this. There's the, and and this is where, you know, we can get more into some of your own work. As I look at, let me preface this with a with a statement, and you can okay. tell me if you if I'm if you think I'm wrong or not. Okay. Because we both know a lot of the contemporary artists who are interested in classicism, representational yeah. art, and yeah, they yeah. look to the 19th century as a kind of resource for this. There is this kind of. Um, uh, fetish for things that are 19th century yeah yeah um almost to the point that it's it's like it's this impossible standard that can never be reached right and and boy you know if i'd only started drawing when i was four years old maybe when i'm 50 i yeah. can i can do what they did yeah right but even then maybe not and and when i look at at what he's doing here um it's what's interesting to me about you in general. Okay. And this is, I've known you for a little while. Right. But I don't think that we wonk out and have conversations all the time about these kinds of things. Sure. Is um, you, you're not afraid to make things look contemporary. Right. And it seems like for some people, those are two opposed ideas. Trying to reach this, this, this standard of quality, craftsmanship, whatever you want to call it in the past. Yeah. And then to make it look contemporary, putting sneakers on somebody. Can't do that. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I'm right. not saying that's what and you would do. Uh, yeah, but I hear when, what you're saying. But when you talk about craft and tradition yeah. versus and making making things contemporary, what? how do you reconcile that? What do you mean by that? Give, can you give me an example? I don't know about an example, but uh, yeah, I, I definitely feel like in my work, I'm, I'm not always successful at it, but I am trying to make things feel like it was created today. Um, I have one painting where it's it's I don't know how traditional it is, but I tried to in the craft wise technically I tried to paint it as 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 good as I could, but you know she's listened to an iPod, you know that kind of stuff. So you know I kind of what's the make, title of this? Is make this... it it's called Playlist. Okay, is this yeah. the one where it almost looks like a uh, saintly icon and it's got the halo? Oh no no the no! But that's another one. That was the adoration of the hi-fi where she's listening. And she's got the beats. Yeah, headphones. Yeah. And that one is definitely a throwback to uh I mean that's why I call it Adoration of the Hi-Fi, the Magi, that kind of that those kind of talk. You don't you don't mind that if somebody were to look at this for 30 years from now, they'd see a beat set of headphones. No, I don't. No, it doesn't bother why me. Why doesn't it bother you? Or maybe you don't know. I don't know. I, I maybe it's just my I can't And I'm not saying it should. It's just for I some guess? people. Yeah. There's this effort to be timeless, and I don't know if you can ever be timeless. Right? right? And you seem I, to you seem to embrace it. Yeah, I understand the idea of trying to make something look like it was painted a hundred years ago. But yeah. uh, I guess it's just my background. You know, I come from a design background and, and graphic design, and 
And uh, I've always wanted to be a painter, but I think it's just those elements that throughout uh, my career that I've just kind of included into my work. So Seymour, Maybe even just not even really realizing it. When you say you started as a design background, tell yeah. us about that. When did you, what, what well, was your first visual um, medium and what were you doing? My first visual medium? Yeah, I mean. Well, I don't even, even, even remember it. It was, uh, it was when I was three. I won a coloring contest for, for, uh, for coloring a green Santa Claus because apparently my brothers had all the red crayons, so I used the green crayon <laughs> and, and won a coloring contest. My mom was very proud about this. And so that's my first experience. But, but you, growing up, I was just always known as the kid that could draw, but I never really tried very hard. I didn't, I what didn't, were you drawing? Well, just just whatever. Fantasy? You know? Were you like drawing portraits? Were you were you, yeah, you copying I was, Pokemon? I was always drawing people. Looking back, I mean, I remember drawing GI Joe characters, you know, stuff yeah. like that. That's um, my era. Yeah, yeah, GI Joe, man yeah, Ninja Turtles, of course, Star Wars, you know, Star Wars, yeah. But it was definitely GI Joes and Star Wars for me. Yeah. And then um, through high school, I, I would just you know art class, you know, I'd be the the guy that they could. Draw, but Where was high school? Where'd you grow high up? School, oh, I grew up in, in northern Wyoming. Northern Wyoming. Yeah. So, so not a huge population in no, Wyoming. Were no. you in one of the population centers? No, no, like 1,200. I was, 1,200 people in my small town. Small town. Small town, small town. So you're not even exposed to a great deal of art. No, and that's the crazy there. thing is so that after... I didn't know anything about the Renaissance or the old masters, and it wasn't until I got to college, which is interesting, I decided I wasn't going to go to co the community college, which was up there, because I felt like, no, I needed to go to a like, bigger school. And Why? Why did you feel like you needed to? I, I just felt like I wanted to get out of that area and kind of experience something larger and greater. And, and, and for whatever reason, I didn't want to stay next, stay at home. Right. But uh, when I got, I, I served an LAS mission, and I, when I got home, I... Where did you go? Uh, Las Vegas. Las Vegas, okay. Yes. And uh, and so I decided to go to this community college and kind of stay around home for for a year or two, and and that's when I met my professor there. That was like he's this um, um, Italian uh, that grew up in in Ohio, but a, a Italian born, and he loves the Renaissance, and so he got me all excited. And this is stuff that I'd never seen before. My and art, he's a my, professor in a community in college in Wyoming. Wyoming painting figurative like. Um, classical in a sense, but it's kind of his own take on it. But it's his, basically his passion for uh, the the Renaissance and the old masters is what really just kind of he kind of transferred to me. And did he and do it in general to class, or was he doing it, was it with to you? Everyone. Okay. He inspired everyone there, okay. and so and he still does. He's still there. What's and, his name? Uh, John Jarizzo. John okay. Jarizzo. He's been teaching for thirty five years up there. Wow. And uh, and he really just made me excited about painting. So I. I uh, came down to BYU to kind of finish my degree, and I didn't want to be an illustrator. And looking back, I should have been in an illustration program, but I went to the studio program. So for those who don't know, and this is pretty much known in the artist community, is yes. that there are kind of two tracks you can go on. Right. There's the illustration, which is is kind of... the Well, there's illustration and there's studio, right? Yes. Yes. And can you define what the two were? Because you said well, you should have gone to in illustration my mind, versus the other. I can only define it the way that I saw it. Is yes. That I felt like the illustration went more representational, more craft, and the studio went more experimental and more um, philosophical. Philosophical. There you go. Conceptual. And kind so of work. Um, when I got there, I was like, 
and I, and I got I was, and I was getting married, so I needed a job, and so I took a job as a graphic designer, and uh, and then my experience in and I was already now, now third year into schooling, and I was at the studio program, and I wasn't getting, you know, that I wanted to basically hone the skill of painting, and I didn't feel like I was getting that, so I finished my bachelor's degree and, you know, left. And then I spent 10 years as a graphic designer, and it's towards, uh, and then that whole time I felt like I tried to paint, but I really didn't really know what I was doing. So you're doing this privately, and you're privately, not trying to... No, not really. I mean, just kind of, you know, I, I had a full-time job, and I was working and, and trying, but trying to like kind of keep up on what I knew that I, that I felt like I was destined to do to be a painter. And, and then I, then I got in contact with, uh, William Whitaker. And how uh, did you get in contact with William Whitaker? I think I took a workshop from him. But before, before you get to William Whitaker, I'm going to back up here for a second, because this is something as someone who studies, I mean, my, my, uh, my research was mainly on classroom practice for artists from the renaissance until the end of the 19th century yeah and it doesn't and i'm somewhat biased towards that kind of conversation and that kind of art okay as a discussion okay um and and one of the things that fascinates me is there's this generally held principle that illustration programs um lost the prestige of being fine art in the eyes of those that became studio programs. So it's not just BYU that's broken right. up this way. It's right, others. exactly. But they maintained yeah. a lot of the the issues that were of a concern to fine artists from the Renaissance until the end of until the beginning of the twentieth century. Yeah. Such as figure, such as perspectives, such as um, tone and yeah. values as you're as you're constructing something. Yeah. And those also have their place within the advertising and design world because they have to do with how your eye is drawn through a piece. Yeah. They have to do with how you're pulling people towards shapes and words, how you're telling a story. And it's on one hand, I can see why studio artists and fine artists deride it, criticize it, demean it because it's, it's at to the end of of, of selling something in particular. It's, it's towards manipulating somebody, if you want to put it in that strong of a <laughs> right. term, towards something. But the other, the other edge of that sword is that you do learn to think about how somebody's going to look at your work on that level of communication. It's very abstract, right? It's very basic. Like you said, it's basic shapes yeah. that you're trying to put together in, 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 in an interesting way so that people uh, respond to it and look at it. Yeah. I think that you can look, if you ever look through, I, I look every year through um, um, the the yearly art review for the, the best ads of the year, the best print ads, the best television yeah. ads. Because you these people are geniuses of narrative. Yeah. And they're working in, in, in a cutthroat business, and it's really, they have to be super practical and brilliant visually with yes, what they they're do. doing. Yeah, they do. So, I, you know, when I, when I hear that you kind of, and this is how you've always introduced yourself. You always kind of like mortify that part of you when you talk <laughs> Do I? as a designer. Maybe and maybe you don't. Maybe this is just me reading into it. And you're like, you know, I was a designer for a little while. And yeah. I think, man, I don't know. That seems to me like a level of education that would be totally apt with a Jerome Hussein. Okay, the most important thing in this is the gladiator getting the up and down yeah. of the of yeah. of the emperor who's at the edge. So everything has to draw us from where he began to where he is to where his enemy is, and then finally to that thumb. 
Right. You got to see the whole story in that one thing. Yeah. There's an ad. And this young couple is about to buy a house and everything's got to go to the transfer of the key. Right. I mean, it's like that kind <laughs> yeah. of stuff that seems like yeah, it's composition. Like, yeah, like you, I learned so much about composition when I did graphic design. And I don't I think that even though it's mentioned and talked about, I don't know how much in the schools it's really, really yeah. taught. I don't know if it is either. And I feel like it's one of those things that's almost like a carpentry trade. Yeah. That you learn it as you're doing it and talking with others and as you observe. And some people get it yeah. and play at high levels and those who don't. I think that's true. But you go so so sorry, that thanks for indulging me. No, that was you, great. You want you you how do you meet William Whitaker, one of the greatest figurative artists that we have anywhere. Well, yeah. And located here. Yeah. Locally. Uh-huh. And very selective with his time and, research and 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 who he spends time with. Yeah. How do you two get connected? Well, like I said, I think I took a workshop from him, and I've I had known who he was, of course, because of, yeah. you know, uh, being you know just who he is, and and then I believe I just out of the blue wrote him and said, hey, would you be interested in taking on any more students? And he said, hey, why don't you come up to my studio and talk to me about it. I was like, awesome. Like, I just kind of out of the blue wrote him, didn't know what he would say. And uh, he was very gracious about it. And, and he let me, for about a year and a half, I worked with him. Interesting. And, uh, and Did I was he still, do that with I was, many people at the same time? Were there others? Yeah, there you? were a few. I mean, he, he, had, he had probably maybe four or five other students at that time. Uh, and I was working full time during that time studying with him. And so I was taking a, a day off on, uh, you know, once a week to go be at a studio and work with him. So I learned so much about studio practice that I had, I had never, never gotten. How did you, would he assign a topic to paint Yeah, he started, subject? yeah, he did. But then it got to a point where I was working on uh, commissions and stuff, and, uh, and then he would just assist me on the commissions. So how did you make the transition? Well, before I ask that. Okay. Give me... <laughs> Give me a typical critique by by Bill Whitaker. Oh, Bill, I don't know if I could do that. Don't it doesn't have to be, <laughs> give me an example. I mean, there's this story about Jerome. Um, yeah, he had over 500 students, and I was talking with um, the man who'd written more about him than anybody else, um, Jerry Ackerman. And he said that the the greatest thing he'd ever the the nicest thing he'd ever recorded that Jerome said to his student was, "That's not bad." That's not bad. I've heard that too. So, so the question I have is about like Bill Whitaker. Are 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 the questions? Is he painting on your canvas? Is he? Yeah, yeah. Is he? Um, is is he giving you directions of build up more on this, sand this down, scrape it off, change your palette? You need to you you need to get rid of that color in your palette entirely. What kind of things are you hearing? Is it a whole range of it? No, he was always he was he. Well, he still is. He's uh, positive, maybe else to a fault sometimes, where he just like everything's you know everything you're doing is great. You're doing good work, and he would critique a little bit and kind of say like change this that, and he painted a little bit on my palette or on my canvas, but not not very often. He didn't paint on on my work. So is is a lot of this kind of like observational? Is he working on his things? He's at the working same on time? his stuff while while I'm working on assignments. So you're picking things up. I'm picking things up. He's definitely. Um, uh, it was. Great. He has wonderful conversations in the studio, and and you can just sit and, and talk with him. And he's painting. He's one of these guys that can talk and paint. I'm not. And uh, he could, he just sits and, and chats and and talks about. It's more uh, philosophical. Mm-hmm. He'll talk about you know the, the spiritual quality of painting, and and so he talks a lot about that. Um, and 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 technical, where he talks about how it you know application and, and things. 
I'm trying to remember. So, it's been a while since yeah. I, since I've had a critique. From, well, and you've from come Bill, a, you've so. come a long way since then. I mean, you yes. are now yes an internationally recognized uh, figurative artist and portraitist. You've you've won perennially top <laughs> awards at the National Portrait Society that yeah. happens back east every every year with a huge pull. I think I read last year that it was something like thirty five to forty five hundred artists that submitted. Yeah. You won third place. The Art Renewal Center, which has like 10,000 artists submit, yeah. and they're broken down by different categories. You had a major figurative work that was that was in that. Yes. Um, yes. One of the one of the questions I have is, you're still a young man, well. and and the question <laughs> is, how did you how did you go from one day a week committing yeah. <laughs> to Bill Whitaker and being having a full time job, being married, probably having kids? Yeah. Right. Yes. To saying, kids. I'm gonna. I feel safe at this point where I can. You're getting commissions while you're working with with yeah. Bill Whitaker. At what point did you know I could do this full time? Well, I didn't really know I could do it full time. I uh, I came to a crossroads at work where I felt like I either needed to. Um, um, I I basically needed to spend less time at work if I was going to be a, a painter. Or I was going to have to commit more, to, you know, or I was just going to have to let go of this idea of, of being a painter. And so I felt like I was at a crossroads. And so I remember going to my boss and saying, is there any way I can cut down to part-time so I could just get benefits? I could just get the health insurance and I could be part-time, like, trying to make it. I'd built my studio. This is studi a stability question, Yeah, right? it was it's stability like question. benefits. And uh, so I'd built my studio... Um, and uh, and I was working in the studio when I could. Is this the studio you're in right yeah, now? Yeah, studio right now. So yeah, so we moved into that house knowing that I was going to build a studio, and I built this you know, to have a space to work in, uh, which has been wonderful. And so I had built a studio, and so I remember going to the boss and saying, uh, "Can I work part time?" Well, he decided, I don't know, to call my bluff, I guess. To uh, he wanted to promote me to art director, which would have been more time at work instead of less time. And I just decided right there that I. I couldn't do it. I, I I had to choose the path that was, I guess. Did it feel like a huge risk? A huge risk. Was your wife supportive oh, and oh, so forth? Yeah, very supportive, but I mean, very worried at the same time. Oh, yeah. I mean, more worried than I was. I, I guess I was self-confident that I can do this. I can. You wouldn't I, have done it if you didn't have some level of ego in it, right? Yeah. And you're like, I can do this. Yeah, I can Nothing do this. Nothing gets done unless you right. unless you feel that. And luckily, we had some we had some money to to you know to kind of. Because so it took me a couple years. To, I felt like because then I really had to buckle down and work on my ability and craft and get better as a painter. So what was the difference between what you did when you were when you when you started folk. that versus what after that two years? What is the difference between the kinds of works and the or the quality? The quality was way better. Why? Uh, because I was focused on it. That's I mean, and still am focused on it 100. percent Feel it's, like it's getting better still. Uh, yeah, I hope so. I mean, that's the the goal is to get better as a draftsman. Yeah, and I'm still working on it, trying to. How are you working on it? How do you how do you forge a path through I, that and know I what to work on? Try to push myself every day to try to. I think it's uh, as any artist, you're trying to develop that ability to see just a little bit better. Yeah. And and now I'm getting to the point where I, I can see better. And uh, of course, but uh, now I'm trying to learn how to edit better, which is one of the things that you, you see so many things. But then just like in this friend Swartz, learn how to edit it, edit it down to a simple. When you, you know, say simplify edit, it. you mean draw, you simplify it, simplify, simplify it. it. Yes. Yeah. So that uh, so that you 
uh, the subtlety is what I notice in all the museums when I look at the great works. I'm looking at how subtle a lot of these transitions. Um, sometimes they're turning form without even using value, which is really amazing, and and things like that that uh, I didn't yeah. consider initially. Initially, I was just trying to like copy. You know, you know, I want this. I want to make my painting look like that. You know, so I'm just copying, trying to trying to. So master copying is part of this too. Master copying, but maybe yeah. not directly copying. Just getting an idea of what things are. Okay, so this is a question. Yeah. You recently came back from a, a trip to Europe. To yes, France. I did. Yes, I did. How did that affect you? And maybe you don't know the it, full answer, but what is? I don't really know if I know the full answer, but uh, it did affect me in the fact that uh, I, I've seen like the high school art shows, yeah. and and and. And I'll see the works, and I've judged a couple of them. I've been lucky enough to judge a couple of them out at Springville. But um, I'll see the same ideas that these high school artists think that they're super original, but you'll see these same ideas used over and over. And I think that's what helped me with Europe is seeing the history of art and seeing the depth of the work and stuff that I thought I was doing that was so original had been done, you know. And I think everybody faces that moment in life, I th- period. You know, I, yeah, I think. And so I think just, and then the quality of the work, it goes back to what I'm talking about, where they're, where the, how they were able to edit and still make stuff read so well and lead your eye around and just, just the skillful quality of the work. When you see masters who are doing it at that level, is yeah, it I, intimidating or is it inspiring or is it both? It's, yeah, it's all of the above. I remember seeing the De La Roche uh, portrait that he did in the Louvre. And didn't use any photography. The thing is amazing. Right. right. And then materials-wise, that thing looks like it was painted yesterday. So that's another thing, too, is how uh, beautiful the execution ex- execution was with, with the way he put down the paint. But then, um, of course, how he prepared his paints as well. What's your take on photography in the process? Oh, I think pho- photography is great. I, I think it's just one of those things that, that can be used as a crutch. If you... Uh, I think you have to learn how to do, have to draw first, and then use the photography to help you in your work. It's another tool in the in the. I arsenal. think it's another tool. Yeah, just like yeah. I'll use um, I'll use three D tools to to work out backgrounds and architecture and stuff like that. I I think all those tools are great. I think you just have to do it in the right order. A lot so, of people will go straight. I mean, that was my high school um, experience was go in the back, get something out of National Geographic, project it onto your under your canvas and paint it, you know, right. that was high school. And, and I realize now that you have to do all the hard work first and yeah. then use the, the projector and those tools if so, you need it. So give me a Casey Child's process of starting a painting and then finishing a painting. Starting and finishing a painting? Yeah. Give me, walk me through generally, well, usually, if you can. Usually it just begins with an idea or an inspiration. Uh, maybe, maybe some other work that I saw, um, I just brought in to you guys this this girl in the window called uh, Take These Broken Wings. Which we'll put up on our website, zineartsociety.org, under the podcast tab. Yeah. You'll yeah. see it. And it, uh, it began with, I saw a photographer had a girl in a window with a dress hanging out. I thought, yeah. wow, that's a cool design. And uh, But of course, I wanted to make it my own. So I ended up contacting a real estate agent trying to find um, a house. I knew I wanted an interesting window frame. So we found this house that was built in the 1880s. And, uh, and I found a model, and, and we went to do a photo shoot. And I wasn't even planning on the ivy that was growing up around. When we came around the... Around it's the, interesting, because value-wise, it frames it with darks. It and, really and worked it really well. Side. It yeah. just was... And it just kind of happened. 
that it was there. And so we did this. And I'm like, oh, this is amazing. This is going to work out Do great. You but I wanted a narrative quality to it as well. So I worked on, I did a, 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 a few studies, a color study, trying to really work out. And that's where I pushed around the leaves to really make sure that they, uh, you know, uh, the composition worked well. So there's some of it is observation, but some of it is you manipulating yeah, some of the space in order to draw the eye yeah. around a particular yeah. way. Are you doing before the model gets in that window frame, like a thumbnail premier ponce or something on like that? this a, one, like no, a, but I've done it in the past where I'll do some sketches to kind of figure it But it's. But it, sometimes you'll take becomes, her in like five or ten different positions. Yeah, and, it becomes so organic that I don't know exactly. It usually depends on the model. And so what I just take, I take a lot of photographs. And then in Photoshop and other programs, I'm kind of moving things around. I'll take. So you're using design skills. I'm using designs. I mean, that wasn't even in the painting. That wasn't the. I probably used a different body than I did the head and, and a different hand than I did. You know what I mean? I'm pulling pieces in. I did the same thing with my uh, Carthage Jail painting. That was thousands of photos. And I and I even brought some of the models back into the studio to reshoot some poses because they weren't quite correct from what we originally shot. And Yeah, I'm using those things. And How and much of it is you get it in exactly the way you want it in the, in the, on, uh, in the Photoshop? Versus how much you're messing around with it on the canvas. I usually have a pretty well thought out idea and and image before I go to the final. And that's yeah. where the colors, color study and other studies, I mean, usually that's what you want to do. You want to have it all, you want to have your whole concept worked out before you yeah. fiddle around on the canvas. Yeah. You don't want to show any any indecision on the canvas. So what what does oil painting add as a medium to this why learn this traditional killing yourself because there, there are photographers sure who stage these scenes photograph them and do things like that yeah and and you know i don't know them very well and i'm moved by canvases right yeah, yeah. and but it, it is a question that i'm sure some people may ask is yeah. so you're somebody who has a strong graphics background you've got yeah. a strong drawing and 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 oil painting background. Mm -hmm. What is it that is an artist? Why why oil as a as a medium? Well, that's 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 a good question. I guess it's maybe it's an egotistic thing that I like being able to create something, knowing that I'm that I'm mixing these colors and I'm putting this down and and uh, and then there's the 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 layering quality that I mean you can do that digitally, but it doesn't have the 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 timeless effect that a painting a painting will last forever yeah it's almost like this argument they're twofold one is i think of the physics of light period is that you've got yeah light bouncing through the layers of the oil paint yeah. on the ground back through the oils towards you yeah which creates a sense of, sense of depth there's a cut there's there's a texture that just cannot be duplicated yeah you see a or, rembrandt you you know you go to the museums these these paintings have a spiritual quality to they them they feel that, organic there's something to to it as yes. a medium, you can't you, you can't, can't duplicate it in a three D printed no. or anything, right? No, you can't. Then there's the other aspect, which is it's it's like people were pronouncing the divide the demise of uh, of of the printed book, not really not really thinking of this idea of the printed book being something that's like a two thousand year old technology, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> I mean, you're not right. going to get rid of a two thousand year old very functional technology, right? There's something about oil painting that uh, that is quite 
Yeah. That's that, that's quite that, that there's I feel like it's almost like cooking that we have grown up with it in a certain way and it's formed who we are and how we look at things. Just like the way that we cook and put certain spices together and I could give you just a glib answer of I really like I really like uh fish with oregano. Okay. And I like how the, the brightness, you know, gets pulled out, but Yeah. There's a much deeper evolutionary natural selection level of why those two things go together. There's yeah. something about oil painting that we've grown up with, we've become used to, that speaks to us in a certain way, in my opinion. Yeah, it's been around for so long, just like you said with the book. Yeah. There's, you're not getting rid of it. And, it's, and I really like the fact that it, uh, and it, it requires the viewer to, to um, meditate on it a little bit. Yeah which I like too, that it's not, uh, we're in a world where everything's so fast paced. I like go like the museums where you can just really sit and ponder a painting like we're talking about with this French Schwartz. So you get together every Thursday at yes. your studio yes. with another, with a group of artists and yeah. you do a portrait. Yeah. And it's, it's a selfish <clears throat> thing because I'm trying to prove my skills. And so I have a live model that I provide at the studio and I invite other artists to come and paint with me. And they helped me pay for the model. How different is your approach now versus what it was five years ago versus what it was five years before that? Have you changed? My approach? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, th I think it's changed. Um, I think it's changed. It's, it's I've, I've just slowly tried to develop my ability to see better. And so it started with trying to be able to draw better in my draftsmanship, which I'm still continually working on. But then it's seeing, it's just simple principles, seeing values better. And now I'm working on color and subtlety and those things. And so in my, I think, I think that translates in my work. Um, I don't know about my, my style or whatever has changed, but uh, I do think that uh, hopefully my paintings are stronger. I'm fascinated by this question about the ability to see. Yeah. I mean, do you believe that there's such thing as a 19-year-old phenom? Or do you think that... Oh, I think there's definitely think I think there's definitely gifted, talented people. I mean, and that uh, that naturally just get onto these principles quicker than other people. I was I was reading a commentary on LeConte Stewart, um, who is a regional artist here in Utah that was yeah. that did maybe ten, fifteen thousand works in his lifetime. They were almost all plain air paintings. He did them quickly. And he used to tell he lived from I think he was born in 1898 or 1899, and he died in 1991. And he painted from the 19-teens until the late 1980s. Wow, I didn't realize that. And he used to tell people that his best period was the 1920s and 30s. Oh, really? Yeah, he called them the family jewels. Wow. And the thing that, has, that bothers me about that is this question of, well, clearly he got better at seeing things as he got older. Sure. And why did he why did he call him his family jewels? I can't think of another artist. And I even see late LeConte Stewart's. They're not as valuable because there is this mentality that his huh. you know, his earlier pieces are better. But I see choices that he's making when he's older, which are subtler, they're sharper in some other in other instances. The palettes are more more varied and sometimes they're more simplified, mm -hmm. right? There's just more going on. His artistic arsenal's increased. Yeah. 
I, I kind of wonder where's Casey Childs going to be 10 years from now. Maybe don't you know. don't know. And don't there's know. something comforting about that because then it means that you don't, you don't have like a, a written out Franklin Covey day planner, medium, long-term goal yeah. of I'm going to well, be doing 30 figure paintings and they're all <laughs> going to be this size by this time. It's not about that. No, not really. I mean, it's, uh, what was I thinking? I, I, I'm just trying to, um, to, oh, well, that's what I'm working on. I, I, in the past, I've worked on just copy, just really trying to get better at copying down what I see. Now I'm working on that whole idea of editing and more of a narrative, trying to get more narratives into my work where it tells more of a story um, or maybe more of a mood. And, mm. and I think, I'm hope, I hope that's where my work is going, um, but I don't know. So we're we're winding down and we're chasing the eclipse. It's going to start here in just a oh, few yes, minutes. Yes, it's a it's a big day. So this is the pre-eclipse question. And if yes. Armageddon happens after this, I'm glad that you're the last person I had a conversation well, with. Thank you. I'm honored. <laughs> but I wonder if you're some of some artists who develop your level of success and reputation. Not only do they paint for themselves and do commissions, but they also use that. They trade it in as capital to teach other people. Mm, yeah. And and not only that makes it sound incredibly capitalistic. It's also like William Whitaker, who mentors people because he feels a need, like a, a responsibility, yeah. a stewardship, yeah. right? Um, is that a choice that you've thought about? Is there? Do you have? I do that actually. Do you? I, so what do you yeah. do? How many? Do I have. I have a mentorship. I have uh, four four students. Yeah. And uh, it's the same thing. It's it's a way of giving back, and uh, I've I've developed this ability to see, and I, and uh, I'm trying to then increase because I don't think any artist sets out and being, you know it's they're not making a bad painting because they choose. It's just because they're not able to see yet the um, the the nuances or the subtlety that that somebody else you know hopefully can help them see. And How so. Do you so that uh, and so I am mentoring a few students for that for that reason. How do you choose your students? They have to be committed, committed professionally. That this is something I've been asked, you know, to teach the neighbors' kids or whatever. And I'm and sure. I, and and, uh, and of course, I turn that down. But I only take on students that I know that this is going to be. They're committed to it, just like I committed years ago after leaving my graphic design job. That this is what I'm going to do. So are you looking for you? In a way, or not necessarily? Well, I guess I am. I didn't really even think about that, but maybe I am. Are you finding them at art shows? Are you finding them? Are they emailing you? The Is place. it both? All Is over it the place, yeah. Um, a few students have you know, just showed up at my, uh, in my Thursday night session and, and uh, kind of started a conversation and, and then started working with me. I lied about this being a final question. This oh, okay. Because I have one more. I, okay. And, and it's, it's just a, a short preamble to the story, which is... Years ago, I've I've gotten to know Jacob Collins, the figurative artist based in New York, right. pretty well. Jacob's great. And um, the first time I, I went to a studio was like 2007. And he had 30 or 40 students who were working in his outer studio. And then he had an inner studio that was in the back that he worked in. And then I came back three or four years later, and none of them were there anymore. He kicked them all out? I said, what had <laughs> happened? And he said... And I hope I don't feel like I'm not I'm betraying anything because he's pretty eloquent and he's pretty open about his process. Um, it's what he's known for. And he said, "Well, I found that that not only did that did it was it was said on one level it was that they could reach a certain level when they were with me, but then when they went off on their own, I noticed after 
years, sometimes decades of them being out on their own, that some of them or many of them never reached the same level as they did as when they were with me. Oh, really? And then he said, um, and also it took away, and he said maybe more importantly, it took away from my art. I didn't have the time that I needed to for my art, Mm. which seems to me that that's also a cycle thing, that sometimes in your career you need to get away from your art and 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 get and be refreshed and sometimes you need to come back to it yeah but it reminded me of this this uh, medieval concept of charisma that they used to talk about with saints okay that saints are given a certain charisma or power from god that they're able to lend to others but it weakens them <laughs> right in the process it seems like some people are energized by teaching yeah and some people it it uh, it it can take up a lot of time. Yeah. Do you find that now that you're in the stage where not only you're making your own work but you're mentoring others, that it's led to a new and better kind of work? Are you still trying to figure out the balance? I, I'm what trying to keep that balance. And so um, with my mentorship, I still have a few days in the studio where it's just me. Interesting. And so I kind of protective of that studio time. Yeah. And then um, I have you know a few days of the week where I have students where they're working alongside me. I'm still working on my stuff, but it is, it yeah. does, it is kind of a distraction in a way. Yeah. And so I'm trying to find that balance. Uh, yeah. Um, I enjoy it. I enjoy the students that I have, yeah. but I really, you know, yeah, there is that balance of trying to get your own work done and then trying yeah. to help other people too. And I don't, I don't think there's a right answer. I, no, I, I think, think it can is. depend on the artist. You know, Jerome had 500 students and yeah, but he also yeah. said, not good. Not bad. Not bad. <laughs> <laughs> so he didn't give much of critiques either. <laughs> well, we should, we've got our, our eclipse glasses here. We should go and, uh, and look at this eclipse. And, and Casey, I just have to say, it's such an honor well, thank to you have for someone of me. your quality and stature, not only in our community in general, but just having you here personally and to know thank you, you. It's an honor. Thank you. It's, it's been an honor to be uh, talking with you today. Thanks, Casey. Yes. We'd like to thank Casey Childs for joining us for this episode of Mormon Visual Culture presented by the Zion Art Society. You can see the works we discussed on our website, zionartsociety.org, under the podcast tab, along with information about Casey's own work. For more interviews and with artists, collectors, and scholars, subscribe to Mormon Visual Culture on iTunes. Don't forget about the opening of our second exhibition celebrating 50 years of LDS art opening September 12th. More information on that can also be found on our website. I'm Eric Bigert. Thank you for listening.